I wonder this morning, have, uh, have you ever thought about what life would be like if uh, certain inventions were never invented? I mean, it's totally a hypothetical exercise, but just something that can maybe be fun to participate in, maybe entertaining to think about how life would be very different by just removing one simple invention. For example, silverware. Again, hypothetical, but if silverware was never invented, what would life be like? You know, is it, we'd be using chopsticks, I don't know, um, using our hands probably more often when we eat, a lot more finger food, that kind of stuff. There wouldn't be that tension when you got fried chicken, do I need to use a fork and a knife, or do you just go for it, right? There wouldn't be one. It'd solve that problem anyway. Um, glasses, contacts, you know, things that help us see better. What if those kinds of things were never invented. You know, for some of us, uh, life would be pretty much the same. For many of us, uh, it would be different. We wouldn't be able to see nearly as well as we could before. Um, probably have a harder time navigating life, maybe. You know, the, the expression, no, I didn't see you there, would take on new meaning if we didn't have contacts and glasses to help us out. Um, if pizza was never invented, that's too depressing. Let's not go there. That's, <laughs> that's just crazy talk. Uh, Facebook, social media. What if that was never invented? Now we're talking, right? There, there's something that, uh, that we could maybe do without. How much more free time would we have in our day if those things were not around? How much less connected would we maybe be with the world, but more connected with, with uh, those in our lives? Uh, imagine that would probably be the case. How much less comparison would take place? in our daily lives if, if Facebook was not there. Now, if there's one thing I know for sure about social media is uh, comparison is inevitable. It's just inevitable. It's impossible, I think, not to compare our own family to other families, our own vacation to other vacations, our own opinions to other opinions, our own recipes to other recipes. That's just part of what uh, social media has turned into. I don't know that it ever meant to be that, but uh, I think that's definitely what it is. And so because we live in the age of social media, it's a, it's a world of endless comparison. I actually read last night, um, I just read one article, so I didn't dig into it too much, but apparently Facebook is looking to pay people to shut off their account leading up to the election. Like hundreds of thousands of people, they're wanting to pay to not use Facebook, <laughs> to shut it off before the election to see what kind of impact it has. Seems kind of strange, but man, to get paid to not use Facebook. <laughs> I might have to look into that one, but uh, comparison, endless, endless comparison. And, and in many ways, I think what we're going to see Paul battle against this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 is a bit of comparison that, that was happening. Comparison between him and these false apostles that had arrived in Corinth. So in this journey through 2 Corinthians, we've really come to kind of the third subsection of the book. So in chapters one through seven, uh, Paul, Paul spoke about, he, he defended his legitimacy as, as an apostle of Jesus. Chapters eight and nine, we covered the last three weeks in talking about giving. Paul there spoke about this collection of funds for the poor believers in Jerusalem. Then in this final section, section chapter uh, 10 through 13, 
Paul confronts a, a rebellious group that had infiltrated the church and, and was potentially causing serious harm to the church body. And, and so chapters 1 through 9, uh, they're pretty pastoral in tone. Chapters 10 through 13 are, are, are much more confrontational in tone. In, in fact, the, the tone is, is, the change is so stark that some scholars would say, Chapter 10 through 13 was a whole different letter to begin with. Still written by Paul, but, but just a separate letter that, that at some point was connected to chapters 1 through 9. Some would argue that the, the tone changes so abruptly. Now, now, whether or not that's the case, Paul, Paul directly confronts this group of people causing trouble for the church. And so, so we'll get more and more details as we go through these final four chapters. But but this group seems to have been made up of traveling speakers who have come to Corinth, claimed to be Christians, but, but were in fact functioning much more in line with the standards of, of Greco-Roman culture at that time, functioning much more in line with that than, than what Christ had put forth. Um, seems that they were then convincing the church to place greater emphasis on cultural values as opposed to the values of Jesus as well. So the group would even go so far to undermine Paul and, and, and try to cast doubt upon his ministry because he wasn't the type of speaker that, that was valued in that society. Paul didn't play the game that they expected those type of speakers in that culture to play. And so we'll see some of this as we, as we go through it. But Chapters 10 through 13, as, as we start through this, uh, we have to remember, we can't forget that, that Paul is directly addressing that specific situation. That's what we are reading. But as we think about application in our own lives as well, we also, I think, should keep in mind temptations that might exist for us as a church body when we think about what Paul's saying, when we think about God's plans and purposes for us as a church body. So, so we'll try to hold those two in tension as we go through this morning, the, the original um, situation that Paul's addressing, but also application for us. So follow along with me. We'll start in verse 1 of 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Let's start by reading the first six verses. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ... I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I'm away, and it's probably being sarcastic there. That's what people were saying about him. He says, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So I think right off the bat, Paul's being accused of being too humble and too weak in person. He's even being accused of being humble in person, but then bold as he writes his letters. 
And you know, in, in classical Greek tradition, great men were never considered humble. They did not want to be considered humble. They did not try to act humble. That was not how it worked in that culture. Meekness and humility, those were things for servants. Those were things for the lower classes of people, according to the elites in this culture. Paul responds to that accusation he doesn't deny his meekness or his gentleness. He, he says, well, I'm appealing here to the gentleness and the meekness of Christ. You know, if you've got a problem with me being gentle, I'm all right with that, basically, is what Paul is saying, right? If the church is going to be persuaded to look down upon Paul because of his meekness, then they need to not forget the meekness of Christ that Paul is seeking to emulate. To reject Paul for being too meek and too gentle is to have to reject Christ as well, because that's who Paul is seeking to emulate as he carries out his ministry. So, so Paul, Paul, I think eloquently and firmly um, reminds them of the very Savior which the gospel proclaims, a, a Savior who was willing to humbly die a, a criminal's death upon the cross in order to bring salvation. Paul says, yeah, you know, <laughs> if you're saying I'm acting like that, okay, you know, we, we, I guess we can go with that. And because Paul seeks to emulate this humility of Christ, he, he doesn't want to come to them in boldness. You see that uh, in verse 2. He doesn't want to have to come and, and, and be, be bold, be forward in that way. In, in verse 2, he urges the church to separate themselves from these false apostles so that he doesn't have to do that when he shows up in person. It's really rather ironic that uh, these false apostles accuse Paul of walking according to the flesh when in actuality, Paul is the one walking according to Christ. According to Christ's example, it's these false prophets themselves who are the ones walking according to the flesh in their desire for fame and, and wealth and influence and things like that. And just as Paul doesn't walk according to the flesh, he, he also talks here about not waging war according to the flesh. He doesn't wage war with weapons of the flesh. And for the next four verses, really, Paul, Paul paints kind of a vivid picture of his ministry using warfare terminology. I mean, if you look back uh, verses three through six, we, we, see, we see words and phrases like waging war, weapons, warfare, destroy strongholds, destroy arguments, destroy lofty opinions, taking captive punishing. I mean, this is warfare terminology. Paul is describing a, a real battle here. But even though Paul is using common terms of warfare, he's, he clearly states he's not waging war in a typical fashion. This isn't, you know, normally war is waged against people, and, and the opposition is other people, and the goal is to attack people and, and either kill them or or force them to submit to their captors. For Paul, people aren't the enemy. Not, not once here does he describe people as the enemy, as he gives this description. Instead, his enemy was arguments against God. His enemy is opinions against God, unruly thoughts. He understood that it, it wasn't these false apostles who he was battling against. 
but rather thoughts and opinions and teachings which, which filled their minds and, and flowed from their mouths. The people weren't the enemy. It was, it was what they were saying, what they were teaching, what they were believing even. I think, I think that sounds so similar to what Paul would write a few years later to the church in Ephesus. That famous passage where Paul says our struggle is not against what? Not against flesh and blood. Same kind of thing. Paul's saying the same thing there. If the battle were against flesh and blood, then, then swords and shields and bows would be the necessary equipment. That's what you would need. But in this situation, Paul talks about a weapon not of the flesh. He says our, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power divine power to destroy strongholds. So, so what's Paul talking about there? If he's not talking about swords and bows and shields, what is he talking about? What, it, what is this weapon in his war against arguments, opinions, and thoughts that are hostile to God? What contains divine power to defeat those things? I think it, it, it comes from what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. Again, more famous words that Paul has written for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. I mean, Paul says it. The power of God is the gospel. Power for salvation for everyone who believes. So those false apostles came into town and, 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 and sought to make their, their ministry all about flashy speeches and, and slick arguments and, and impressive appearances. Paul, on the other hand, meekly and, and gently presents the powerful gospel of Jesus Christ. He says that, that that's, my, that's my weapon in this, in this battle. He trusted in the divine power of the gospel to win the victory, not in his own efforts, not in his own you know, rhetoric as he spoke to them, but in the gospel itself. That was Paul's battle strategy. Trust in the divine power of the gospel. He was mocked because of that strategy. These, these false apostles took him to town because of it. But even in the midst of their opposition, he, he, he doubles down here. He says, you know, I, basically I stand firm. I do not fight with weapons of the flesh, but with divine power, presenting the gospel. I, I, you know, I think, again, we, we want to look at what Paul's saying in that situation, but also application today. And I think there's a great reminder for us as a church body and all churches in this passage that, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's, it's, uh, it's not, our weapon is not of the flesh. Instead, we, we fight against arguments and opinions and thoughts that, that oppose God and hold people captive. And, and so we, we fight against them humbly and gently with the gospel, that weapon that holds divine power, according to Paul. And I, I came across a quote by D.A. Carson that I, man, I, I thought points out so well that, that, that this battle against thoughts and opinions opposed to God, it's, it's not a battle that we're just trying to win the argument. It's not about our victory in, in a debate or something like that. D.A. Carson says this, Paul means something far more. His weapons destroy the way people think, demolish their sinful thought patterns, the mental structures by which they live their lives in rebellion against God. So, so we present the gospel of Jesus and allow its transformative truths 
energized by that divine power to defeat the lies of Satan. First and foremost, we ought to do that within ourselves. We ought to let that gospel, that the divine power of the gospel work within us, defeat our thoughts and our opinions and, and lies that we've believed that stand opposed to God. And then after that, we, we hopefully desire to see that work done in, in the lives of, of friends and family and, and acquaintances as well. It starts within us. We allow that divine power to work. And then we desire, hopefully, to see that power work in the lives of others. It can be so tempting to think people are the enemy. And, uh, you know, I think this is especially true in our, our increasingly polarized culture. I think as these next couple months of an election season come up, it's only going to show itself more and more, try to paint the other person as the enemy. We're not trying to take people captive. We don't. We don't try to take people captive. We want the gospel to take rebellious thoughts captive so that people can see the truth about who God really is. And so when, when we think about our calling as a church body, our, 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 our battle strategy is, is not to wage war against people with weapons of the flesh. Our battle strategy is to wage war against the lies about God with the divinely empowered gospel. That's our strategy. That's our, that's our calling in that strategy, to present the gospel and let the gospel, empowered by God, do its work. It's what Paul did in Corinth. It's what I think we are called to do as well. And so after, after kind of writing about his battle strategy or his ministry strategy, um, Paul addresses the way in which these false apostles were, were evaluating themselves and evaluating him. So he says this, uh, you can follow with me in verse 7. He's talking to the church here. He says, look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. So it seems that, that because Paul was not displaying the, uh, the qualities or values that these false apostles held in high esteem, they, and, and they got the church to do this, were questioning whether Paul was really a believer because his ministry lacked the type of, of pride and flash and eloquence that they assumed would be there. And so as a result, the church body was questioning whether the power of God was actually present within Paul. Paul basically says to the church, hey, if you guys are Christians, I am too. I brought you the gospel. <laughs> if you believed what I told you and that makes you a Christian, then of course I'm a follower of Christ. If you are in Christ, of course I am as well. They believed the gospel Paul preached to them. Paul didn't proclaim the true gospel, then the church body themselves must not be believers either. That's what Paul's wanting them to see here. 
So, so he refutes the claims of these false apostles by asking the church to examine themselves. Say, the gospel message that I presented to you, what you received, doesn't that make you a believer? And then he also assures them that, that his ministry purpose is not to destroy them, but to build them up, not to destroy them. He says that, uh, let's see, in verse 8. God has given him authority for building them up, not for destroying them. He, he talked about what he is trying to destroy in that first section. He's trying to destroy those, those opinions and thoughts and lies against God. He's not trying to destroy the church. He's trying to build them up. That is his purpose. Paul ought to be evaluated based upon that, not, not the values and ideals of the Greek culture. I mean, and that stood in contrast to the false prophets. You know, they, he even quotes them here, right? His bodily presence is weak. His speech is of no account. Because of that, they, they assumed Paul was, a, was a, not a legitimate apostle. At least he wasn't what the church in Corinth really needed, I think they would, they would argue. And it's kind of interesting. There, there's a, there is an ancient tradition about Paul's appearance that has been passed down through the centuries that, that would validate what these false apostles were saying about Paul's appearance. So this, this tradition describes Paul, listen to how flattering this is, a man of middling size, his hair was scanty, his legs were a little crooked, his knees were projecting, he had large eyes, and his eyebrows met, and his nose was somewhat long. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that's the description of Paul, this tradition that's been passed down. Right? That, that description is the complete opposite of the type of appearance that would have been valued in that Greek culture. I, I just came across a, another description. This is a philosopher from the time of Paul who, dis, who was describing a different orator in Corinth, and he described him this way. He says, he was elaborately dressed and whose attire in general was highly embellished. And he'd go on to say that this orator uh, sported a lavish hairstyle. He was bedecked in jewelry. He plucked out all his body hair to enhance his physical appearance, which doesn't sound fun, but apparently was valued in that culture. But you can see the difference here. Uh, you know, outward appearance, grandeur, that, that was important in that Greco-Roman setting. But we have to remember, and, and, and why I had Jim read that passage from uh, 1 Samuel earlier, God does not see as man sees. Right? These false apostles were judging based on external appearance, based on the forcefulness of the speaking. God doesn't see as man sees. We tend to focus on appearance, but God focuses upon the heart. And I think this underlies what, what Paul is saying here. The false prophets in Corinth, they were leading the church body, <clears throat> excuse me, to focus on Paul's outward appearance. That's what they wanted the church to do. <clears throat> they judged themselves and others based upon those outward appearances. But, but again, just as God looked at the heart in David's day, the same was true in Paul's day, and, and the same is true in our day as well. God, God looks at the heart. Proper evaluation doesn't focus on outward appearance, but, but upon the heart. And, and Paul's heart was focused upon building up the church, not himself. I mean, if he was trying to build up himself, he never would have done ministry the way he did. He was trying to build up the church. The false prophets had that the other way around. They were trying to build up themselves. 
Now, again, when we think about application for us as a church body, it can be tempting to, to judge based on outward appearances. It, it can be tempting to look around at other churches and evaluate ourselves based on what we see, based on the appearance. And I think when we do that, what do we typically focus upon? What are the things that we can see? Well, the size of the church, the size of the congregation, right? The newness of the building, the skill of the preacher or the worship band, the, the number of ministries that are present. As soon as we start evaluating ourselves in that way, we, we run into danger. You know, we're in danger of becoming prideful. Uh, we're in danger of becoming self-centered or we're in danger of becoming discontent or, or of becoming depressed. Our evaluation of ourselves must not be based upon comparison with others. But instead, it's our own calling, our own task given to us by God. So, so does our building match up with that other churches? It doesn't matter. The real question is, are we faithfully utilizing the building that God has given to us? Uh, does our worship band outperform that other churches? Well, it doesn't matter. The question is, are, are we faithfully utilizing our giftings? Do we, do we have as many uh, children in our programs as the other churches? Well, it doesn't matter. Are we faithfully discipling the kids that God has brought to us? When we, when we start to examine based on outward appearances, we run into trouble. And it's not an excuse for laziness. It, it, it's not an excuse for half-heartedness to say, well, it doesn't really matter. No, it, it, it matters. We've been given a task, and we, we ought to pursue that task, as, as we'll see Paul focus in on here real soon. But God's evaluation of us is not based upon a church down the street or across town or across the country or, or any other church body, even any other FEC church body in our own denomination. It's based upon our faithfulness to the task that God has called us to and for which he has equipped us. God looks at the heart, right? That's, that's the evaluation. That's how we ought to evaluate ourselves as well. In, the, in these closing verses, Paul speaks about his task, right? He, he doesn't want to be evaluated based upon <laughs> what these false apostles think he should be evaluated on. He wants to be evaluated on his own God-given task and his desire to carry out that task. So listen to how he says it in uh, verse 13, down through the end of the chapter. But we will not boast beyond limits but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Paul reminded the Corinthians that he was the one that brought the gospel message to them. The church in Corinth was an area over which Paul held influence. God had given him that authority. Now, he didn't say this to puff himself up. Rather, Paul took seriously the fact that God had entrusted that body of believers to him. 
God assigned them to Paul, according to Paul's words. So he took that seriously. And it, it's not as if he was against anyone else in Corinth coming and, and, and preaching the true gospel. Paul welcomed that. We, we, you even see that in, in 1 Corinthians, where Paul was talking about, you know, Peter and Apollos and Paul, and, and some are with this guy. And some. When, when people brought the true gospel, Paul was all for that. In, in 1 Corinthians, he didn't urge the church to ditch Peter or, or to ditch Apollos. He said that those two men were preaching the true gospel, and Paul rightly taught that they were all working together to plant and to water. Paul welcomed that. It's not like he had to be the center of attention in the church. But that wasn't the case with these false apostles. They weren't bringing the true gospel to the church. And so that's why Paul spoke out against it. These false apostles didn't care about the spiritual health of the church body. They only came to town because there was money to be made and, and esteem to be gained. And, and Paul called them out on it. So even though you could probably argue that Paul himself could have begun to seek those things, money and influence and fame, in Corinth, but, but he didn't. His, his goal remained, build up the church. His goal remained, as we see in verse 15, increase the faith of the church. That's what Paul was called to. And then beyond that, once the church in Corinth was in a good spot, he wanted to see the gospel go out from there and reach lands beyond, he said, that it had not been to yet. So, so Paul's not boasting about his own efforts. He's not seeking to be commended based upon what he had done. If he was to boast, he was only going to boast in what God had done in him and through him. This calling that God had placed on his life and how God was working through Paul's obedience to that call. If he was to be commended, he wanted to be commended by God himself. Not by the church body, not by the false apostles, by God himself. He was focused on what God called him to do, and he was going to continue in that calling in the power of God. And again, I, you know, as we think about ourselves as a church body, we've been given a purpose. We've, we've been given a task by God to carry out. Now, now, how we carry out that task isn't always simple to discern, especially in COVID times, right? And uh, I'll tell you, I think that that's why it's, it's important to have a group of elders who serve by leading the way and seeking to determine that task, right? Spending time in prayer, asking God to guide us, uh, examining gifts and talents and resources that God has given to all of us, examining, examining opportunities that God has, has brought to us. Our goal as a church shouldn't be to, to carry out tasks that are comfortable or popular or, or just like what other churches are doing. We have to be focused on God's leading in our specific setting, what he's calling us to as a church body. And, and I, man, I'll, I'll just be honest, from my own perspective, that has been so difficult over the past six months. With all, uh, you know, COVID has just taken a lot of time and attention to navigate through. And, and at times it, it almost felt like simply surviving was the success, right? And, and, uh, but hopefully, my, my hope is that, that in, in the weeks, in the months, even years to come, that, 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 we, that we refocus again on some of those things that God has called us to. That's why we're, that's why we're restarting Sunday school next week. We, we, we understand that discipleship of children and adults is one of the callings that God has placed 
on, on the church at large, but, but our church body as well, a focus on that. And so we want to carry that out through, through Sunday school classes and other ways. Um, you know, building up the church body uh, relationally through fellowship is another calling. And so that's why we sought feedback about, uh, about a potluck next week and are going to move forward to, to try that out next week. And, you know, God, God has assigned to us as Eureka Bible Church in, in an area of influence and a task to carry out, and, and, and we want to be faithful to walk in that task. We don't want to assume that, that we always do it exactly the same way, but, but we want to be faithful to walk in that task that God has given us. We want to not be commended by others outside of ourselves, not even be commended by ourselves. We want to be commended by Christ, according to what he has called us to. So, uh, kind of go back to the whole comparison thing that I think is a theme running through this chapter. Our, our technologically connected world, it, it just made it, it, it has made it so easy to compare in so many different ways. It's true for us individually to compare ourselves with others. I think it's true for church bodies as well to compare ourselves with other church bodies. If there's one thing I know about comparing ourselves to someone else, the grass is always greener on the other side, isn't it? It's always greener on the other side. But the other person does not have it all as together as it seems online. They don't. We know that, but, but they don't. They, they don't have it all together as it seems. That other church isn't as free of struggles as it might seem from the outside. The grass is always greener on the other side. Our, our calling is, is not to compare ourselves to others. Our calling is not to struggle against flesh and blood. Our calling is to take the gospel to the world and, and allow the divine power of that gospel to work, to destroy strongholds, as, as uh, Paul talked about. And our calling isn't to do it as in, in uh, the exact same way that, that every other person or every other church does, but to do it according to God's purpose and God's direction for us. So I, I think my prayer in, in all of this is, is that, uh, that we as a church body would, would pursue that together. Again, not to, not to boast in ourselves, not to be commended by others, but to boast in God and to be commended by him. I think that's, that's where the focus ought to be. Remembering who the struggle is against, remembering what we're called to, and just seeking to faithfully walk in that. Allow God's power to work and, and destroy the strongholds as we do that. Would you stand with me? Let's, let's maybe, uh, as we close in prayer, even rededicate ourselves to that, refocus ourselves on that as individuals and as a church body as well. God, as, as we gather here this morning, we thank you. Um, we thank you for who you are. We've been singing praises about you this morning. We've spoken about how you are at work and in different areas. God, as, as we come to this passage corporately as a church body, would you, would you help us to remain focused on you? Would you help us to remember who the, who the struggle is against, who, how we ought to fight in this battle, not with weapons of the flesh, but, 
but one of divine power. And I thank you that that describes the gospel, that that describes your work upon the cross, that that describes the work that you've done within us. God, we desire to see that work describe what you do in in other people in our lives as well. Would you guide us and direct us as a church body? Help us to know how you're leading and calling us to, to wield that weapon of divine power. God, to take the gospel out and, and allow you to, to work powerfully through that. God, give us, give us the wisdom in that. Guide us in that. We, we know we won't do it flawlessly every time. And in those cases, forgive us. God, we, wanna, we want, want EBC to, to be a place where, where strongholds are, are tore down. These, these thoughts and opinions that stand against you are shown for what they are. God, we pray that it would happen within this building. We pray that it would happen as we go out in our daily lives as well. We give you praise. God, we give you praise that you have opened our eyes to the truth of the gospel, that, that we can put our faith in you. We thank you so much for that. And God, as we move now into to singing your praises once again, it's our desire that you're honored and that you're glorified. It's in your name we pray. Amen.